Welcome to episode 24 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined in studio by my good friend, John Sloat. Doc, what's going on? <laughs> I, You know, I'm loving the weather that we've had of late here. It's been beautiful. And, um, yes, yeah. you know, we're, tra- we're, we're full, I feel more fully into summer mode at this point. Yeah, and you've preached a couple sermons outdoors uh, yeah. the last uh, last few weeks. That's been a different experience for sure. Uh, we've had, again, beautiful weather for that, which has been great. The only challenge is that um, it's been a tad windy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's the fear of the notes just going off the uh, off the uh, podium there. Which... And, and what have you been preaching on? I mean, so, I know because right. I'm there. Right, so we've been but... doing—we uh, resumed our series in Galatians. So— I was in the I, our church was preaching through Galatians, when uh, when COVID struck, and so um, I was in the first of I had done the first of three consecutive sermons in mm-hmm. Galatians three, and uh, we resumed back uh, last week, and so I did sermon two and three, um, so that was good. I enjoyed it. Um, different experience. It's. You know, we're doing church outside in our parking lot area, and so people are so spread out. It feels very strange. The opportunity to make eye contact is almost gone at that point because there aren't anybody. There's nobody sitting that close, really, that you feel like you're actually making eye contact. It's more of, well, I, I'm looking at your face, but I can't tell if you're looking really back at me or whether we're... And people are wearing sunglasses and those sorts of things yes, as well. Yeah. Yes. Now, this past week was nice that we lifted our mask requirement. So a little bit more of the face is visible. But yeah. before, with the sunglasses and the masks, it's like, I, I, I'm not sure who that is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Andrea and I had a, had a running tally of how many times people said with unveiled face Yes. Uh, in, our, in our church service. I think it was like Three or four times um, in yes. the midst of a, the service. That I don't think um, I did though. I, I think I no. I avoided no. that. And I, I, I think I could tell you were going to, but when the guy before you <laughs> made that joke, I think you had to pull it back. Yeah, I, I will say that one interesting dynamic about preaching in that environment is there when you when you're used to preaching inside in a smaller space. It is much easier to feel like you are actually interacting with the congregation. Hmm. You hear them more. You you know, there's more if they were, you know, we have a few people who are the, you know, amen kind of people or that kind of thing. Or even when you try to use humor, you know, in a closed space, you hear people laugh. Yeah. But if you try to use humor in that kind of space where it's just wide out, wide open in the in the parking lot, you don't really know. Did that joke or that funny comment actually land? land? Yeah. Or are people just like, eh, you know? Now the 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 flip side of that is that it's um, it's less awkward if it doesn't. Yeah. Because if you're mm. in a small space and you say something that you think is funny and it's not, the silence is palpable. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if you're out in the open, it's like, no. Oh, if nobody laughed, I can't really tell anyway. So I've noticed that with uh, singing, singing, it's it's yes. like I I don't really think about my volume when I'm inside, uh, which has lent you know lent people to say John sings really loudly, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, 
but when I'm outside, I'm like more aware that it's yeah that it's that my volume is is louder, and so I actually quiet down. I think when I'm outside, huh. which is a which is an interesting dynamic. Yeah, that is. So we certainly want to uh, encourage our listeners to connect with us. We are on Twitter at V and S Pod. You can email the show various and sundry podcast. That's all one word, smashed together at gmail.com. And we have a Facebook page, so we'd encourage you to check that out. Give us a like. Go ahead and follow us. And we did have some people connecting with us on Facebook over these last two episodes when it comes to talking about deconversion stories and that kind of thing. So we appreciated that. But we, what we really want, if, <laughs> if, if, we're, if we're just blatantly obvious here, is we want people to go and, make, uh, and, and do reviews and leave ratings on. And, and share the podcast. Yes, and you share know, it. You yeah. know, share it on Twitter, share it on social media. We're, we're really trying to build an empire here, and we want you to be a high-ranking <laughs> official in this yes. empire. So, Yes, indeed. So share it. Tell your friends about uh, this quirky podcast that you just love so much. Yes, yes. We did have one new review this past week, so I want to thank that listener for From that. From a Buckeye pastor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, you—, you you kind of scoffed a bit at the uh, the Buckeye emphasis in the podcast early on, and uh, I just I feel like we've been a little bit vindicated by the uh, the feedback we're getting from from, mm-hmm. our, from our audience. So, and I think it helps as well the fact that your wife comes from a Buckeye family. Yeah, yeah, so, she does. Yeah, yeah, she does. So as we uh, think about sports, there's not a ton going on. Um, do you want to start by talking about your uh, about your major league baseball dumpster fire? Yeah, I don't know. I <laughs> I don't know what there is to say. You know, last week the commissioner came out and goes, "I'm confident we're going to have a season." Well, yesterday he came out and goes, "I don't know." And then the players' union uh, scoffed at that, saying, "This is yeah. just a tactic and PR world," and so they are they are fighting one another intensely. And it's no one's coming out of this looking good. Like, no. I don't think the owners are coming out of this looking particularly good. I don't think the players are coming out of this looking particularly good. And what's going to suffer uh, is viewership, if, yeah. particularly if they don't have a season when yeah. they have such an opportunity to really capture yeah. uh, the yeah. American viewers. They are absolutely flushing down the toilet a golden opportunity mm-hmm. because – as they were sort of initially projecting, you know, the earliest reports were, yeah, we're going to relaunch July 4th. That's what kind of the hope was, the plan was. You're thinking, what better way to celebrate July 4th? I mean, baseball is Americana. Mm-hmm. And to relaunch baseball, it'd be the only professional sport, really, that is actively playing live games and that kind of stuff. I mean, they would have had the... Uh, attention of the sports world for nearly a full month by themselves. Well, and it's one of the it's the sport that has the most distance between players on on, on an average average right. play, right? Yeah. Like like baseball, everybody's sort of spread out. Yeah. You know, the, the catcher, umpire, batter are pretty close. If there's a guy on first, he's holding them on. You know, right. but for the most part, they're fairly spread out um, and, and it's so, not a contact sport you're not like constantly colliding into each other like yeah. you are with basketball and obviously football well and the contact that they did have they've outlawed in the last couple of years so <laughs> yeah um you know there's there's just very little con- so it made sense that like this could work but 
man, they're, they're arguing about money and they're going to lose viewership, particularly the younger sport fan. This, yeah. this was an opportunity to really bring them into the baseball totally. fold. And you're not, you're not going to lose guys like me. I'm going to continue to watch baseball. I'm going to continue to love baseball, even if it's not played this year. But you're going to lose the, the 15 to 18-year-old who, my goodness, I don't have the NBA. How do, what, what can I watch? And yeah. he's not going to be able to watch baseball. Right. So that's very disappointing. Um, also, uh, the NBA had announced we're going to launch, relaunch June, or sorry, July 30th or 31st. And it looked like they kind of had a plan in place and they announced it and, and the owners approved it. Yeah. And then suddenly you started to hear whispers of players saying, I don't think I'm interested in being in a bubble for three months. Yeah, which makes you think, did the commissioner or the owners talk to players about the plan to be in Orlando for the duration of the season in the playoffs? Or? Yeah, I don't know. That seems It seems strange that that was not addressed on the front end before they made the big announcement, this is what we're doing, and now it's, well, actually, we've got players who are like, I, I don't want any part of that. I'm not sure I want to be a part of that. I've even heard reporters saying, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to go live in this bubble for x amount of time and yeah and, and be there although i have heard the broadcast themselves will happen in from, studio in studio right which is which is fascinating which i don't know if you've ever watched nba tv and watched one of those games where they have these four players yeah. uh, four former players break down the game as it's happening in the studio yeah that's it's pretty interesting yeah though you you do wonder part of what makes basketball in part and not unique but part of what makes the announcing such a part of the game is when the announcers can themselves feed off the energy and the vibe in the building right and you you, right. you just can't replicate that from a studio like you can you hear crowd noise right but right but will there be crowd noise right you know? exactly well they well you know there there were reports of them you know, talking about do we make artificial crowd noise to sort of fill in the background? Yeah, I don't know. That'll be that'll be something to to keep an eye on. But uh, one last thing on the sports front: um, there was another 30, 30 for thirty this past week. The last of a of a series that they uh, ESPN had announced that we were going to you know crank out to kind of fill the void, and this one was called Long Gone Summer on the uh, home run race in baseball in 1998 between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. And I remember this very clearly. Like, I remember this happening. The Bulls stuff I don't remember quite as much. Mm -hmm. Lance Armstrong is, you know, I don't pay attention to cycling quite as much. Like, I knew what was going on in those instances. Sure. But this I paid attention to. This I was was following. Yeah. Yeah, it was – I do remember that season myself – and then in watching the 30 for 30, which was, it was all right, nothing spectacular, uh, not comparable to The Last Dance. Of course, The Last Dance had, you know, 10 episodes. and Sure. But it was interesting to hear interviews with both Sosa and McGuire and their perspective on how it unfolded and see them sort of track the progress of each of them uh, on a not even just on a daily basis, but like hour by hour, them matching home runs back and forth. Yeah, I remember I remember being a kid and my 
mom was a big Good Morning America watcher at okay. the time. And uh, <laughs> and I remember them doing Sosa and McGuire updates yeah. for like who homered that day. Yeah. And, th- and it was always, did they homer? Did they win? You know, right. the, the, yeah. it was in that order, right? It was, right. It was did they homer? And this individual achievement was was huge. Now, I did. I didn't. I haven't watched Long Gone Summer yet. I haven't had an opportunity. Mm-hmm. One of the key things that eventually comes out is that uh, both these men were doing steroids. Well, McGuire's owned up to it. Sosa has not, as, as far as I understand. Correct. Though he was one of the players. Apparently, they did like a a testing in like two thousand two or three. Um, of players and his apparently he tested positive in that even though they were supposed that those results were supposed to be kept private Hmm. the new york times ran an article that outed alex rodriguez and sammy sosa among a few others who had tested positive in these sort of like initial kind of dry run tests for uh peds but uh yeah Sammy doesn't really own up to the uh, to the use of that. The closest he gets in the thirty for thirty is to say, basically, well, you know, kind of everyone was doing it, and you know, why am I being singled out? But doesn't come out and de- and say, yeah, I totally used it. You know, M- McGuire at least has been direct and honest. Of I think he did a sit down with Bob Costas, right? Yeah, where where he owned up to it, but. It, it, it was interesting, you you know, that 30 for 30, it's two hours. And maybe the last like 10 to 12 minutes was on the steroids issue. Really? That's yeah, it? that's it. Hmm. That's interesting. Because looking back on that summer, steroids was like the story, you know, five, five, 10 years down the road, right? Right. Steroids was the story. Um, right. I mean, it does it does point out that it it, it sort of throws some shade on um, the commissioner at that point because they they show him saying, "Well, we didn't really know that it was Bud. that yeah, yeah that it was this rampant and you know that we had heard rumors, but and I just wanted to to say balderdash. Like, yeah, come yeah. on. He he. I I never liked Bud Bud Selig. Right. Yeah. Um, first of all, he was an owner of a team. Right. He owned the Brewers, I believe. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, while being commissioner, which always felt weird to me, and then he kind of always looked skeevy. He just—he <laughs> was just a shady-looking fella. Yeah. Um, so I, I never, I never cared for Bud, um, and and yeah. I, now on the steroid front, I imagine that if you went to McGuire and Sosa and said, "Hey, we're going to do a thirty for thirty on this summer and how steroids were the real story," yeah, they wouldn't sit down for that interview. So, right. so I can understand. In part, why why they didn't really go there? Yes, yeah, it just seems so disingenuous, though, for the for the commissioner to say, "Well, we didn't really know." All you saw was a revival of baseball because the you know the strike shortened season of '94 had totally wrecked fan perception of baseball, mm-hmm. and now here it is four years later, and finally you've got people coming back to the game and thinking this is amazing, and these home runs are just monstrous shots, and and they're you know they're breaking the record with three four weeks left in the regular season. Yeah, and you know McGuire ends up hitting seventy, and you know what was it? Sosa hit sixty six, I think. Something year? like that. Some yeah. ridiculous numbers like that. And so 
all all the commissioner saw was dollar signs. People are coming back. Ballparks are filling up again. TV ratings are going through the roof for, I mean, they were, ESPN was breaking into, you know, whatever game they had, right? They had, you know, random game between, say, the, you know, the Tigers and the Indians, okay? They're breaking into the middle of the third inning. Okay, Sammy Sosa's first at bat for the night. And then they come back, like, oh, 15 minutes later, oh, Mark McGuire's at the plate. We're cutting away from this, you know, Indians-Tigers game to go to, to watch their That's at-bats. incredible, like, yeah. It was just crazy. Yeah. Hmm. Did, they, uh, did, they, did they talk all at all about bonds? And Just at the very end, in connection with steroids and in connection with him breaking McGuire's single-season record. Yeah, because I remember Bonds was, I think, a better hitter than either of them. Yes. And I think after seeing what they did, he kind of went— let me show you what I can do. Yeah, sure. And uh, and started using and I mean just obliterated their records. Yeah, I think he hit over seventy. You know. Yeah. So we need to move on to our main topic for the day. And okay. so, John, what are we talking about today? So we're talking about um, a bit of our own profession. You know, yeah. a bit of our own craft. Uh, so we're talking about teaching, um, yeah. which may seem a little less serious maybe than than uh <laughs> than uh than what we talked about last week with deconversion but i think it's something near and dear to our hearts something yeah. that we love to do um and so we just we just want to talk about it a little bit um so matt do you want to break down for us how you got well, into i was going to give you an opportunity to explain the genesis of this topic the genesis of this topic yeah why are we oh, talking about this oh, on the pod yes. today um, so you and I were texting, what was that, Sunday? Yeah, that's the, that's the typical Sunday text. What are we going to talk about yeah, this Yeah, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> um, and I was out back watering grass, I believe, as, you yes. know, is, you know, a good chunk of my life right now. <laughs> and, uh, Andrea and I are sitting back there. I was like, Andrea, what should we talk about in the podcast? She goes, uh, teaching. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. And yeah. so we have Andrea to thank for the topic of yes. our podcast this week. Yeah, so, um... And as we discussed that, we thought, you know, that that is something that's important to us. And and even if you're not a teacher yourself, uh, all of us have sat under teaching, right? You sure. know, we've, we've experienced teaching, whether it's in uh, sort of formal schooling, whether it's in the church or just in other contexts. And so... Or frankly, on YouTube, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we all go to YouTube to try to figure out how to do things. And those are... Those are you, you're... If... If you're not, you're lying or you're missing out, you know, because because you can learn so much. Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, we're going to start maybe just kind of talking about how each of us got into teaching. Is that where we want to go? Yeah, sure. So uh, when you went to Ohio University as a, as a whippersnapper um, <laughs> with his sports broadcasting major, yeah. uh, did you think you would one day uh, be a professor at a university? No. Uh, I did not, uh, not initially at least. So I'll tell the story briefly because there's a lot of moving parts. But during my uh, sophomore year there, I had become more and more involved in crew Mm -hmm. and began to have some opportunities to lead a small group Bible study and get to know some of the leaders a little bit better. And they began to just give me opportunities to share in small groups, to teach in those kind of contexts. And in light of observing me in those contexts, they 
continue to give me more opportunities to teach in larger venues within crew. And really, that was a key piece of them sort of identifying and saying, we think you have some gifts in this area. We want to see you use them, and we want to help you develop them. And that was really the starting point for me going down that road of not just thinking about ministry, but ultimately thinking, I think that maybe what God is calling me to is the life of a professor, someone Mm. who teaches in the academy, but also writes and researches and has a ministry of teaching within the the church. And so that was really vital for me to have older believers around me to affirm those gifts and help me develop them. Yeah. Hmm. So that's the short version of that. And and what did your path look like after that? So you're you're affirmed by these leaders around you. What what were some next steps uh, that you took? Yeah. So I, when I graduated from uh, Ohio University, I went on staff with Crew, and that continued to give me more opportunities to, sure. to teach and to, to develop those gifts. And spent about five years in campus ministry in that context. But even in the midst of that, I had. Uh, men around me who were affirming the gifts and helping me develop them. In particular, uh, a shout-out is in order to Brian McAllister, a listener of the podcast yeah, here. Yeah, so, He's left a review. Yes, yeah. appreciate uh, appreciate Brian a lot. He's a, he's, a, he's a good friend and a key part of my spiritual development. But uh, he, during that time, I began to take seminary classes just to mm-hmm. sort of explore, you know, is this really what I think God is leading me towards and seem to do well in those classes and as as that as those gifts became more evident, I sort of decided, you know, I need seminary training for ministry in general, but I think this is the path, particular in terms of teaching and writing. Went off to seminary, and that's where it was more of diving into the sort of theological education world. And so, like, just to just to put some more pointed words to it, not only did you enjoy teaching others and interacting with others and, and showing them the truth, you also enjoyed learning about that truth and, and pulling those things out. And so seminary was a key, key part of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it was the, the curiosity and the fascination with what I was learning as well that, that was a, a natural gateway into wanting to, uh, to teach others, to hmm. share what I was learning and try to figure out ways to communicate that in, in, um, in ways that people could understand. Okay. And then, of course, you know, there was seminary and then, uh, a, a key piece at the end of seminary was my last year. I I got the opportunity to teach beginning Greek hmm. as a master student. So at, at, tr- at, at Trinity, Trinity, yeah, yeah, which uh, was a fabulous experience. Talk about stretching. Talk about uh, yeah. challenging. You, you know that well. Yeah, and uh, developing that was just a, a huge piece of that. And then going on to do PhD work and getting more opportunities in the classroom, observing. Uh, and teaching as well. I got to teach a class alongside Doug Moo at Wheaton as part of the program. Oh, cool. And then got to teach an undergrad Bible class while I was at Wheaton. Hmm. So those were those were key experiences that kind of got me down the road a little bit. And coming here and then diving in full time, it's been uh, something I've enjoyed immensely. And you've been teaching how, how long now at Grace? 14 years. 14 years. How do you feel as though you've developed as a teacher in the last... Um, let's say 10 years? Yeah. I think for me, the biggest areas that I I feel like I've developed are a diversity of teaching styles and Mm -hmm. things I do in the classroom. Because part of what you get exposed to in the the academy, I'm still old enough 
that my primary experience with teaching was much more on just the, well, it's lecture. Mm-hmm. The professor comes in and he lectures and he'll, he'll take questions and he'll answer, but that's basically what you do. You come in and you lecture sure. and answer questions. So I'd say in the last 10 years, I've, I've gotten a lot more diverse in the things I do in the classroom, breaking students up into small groups for discussion, giving them specific activities even within class that we then debrief afterwards or have students share about, um, you know, okay, in your discussion, you were asked to talk about this. What were some of the key points that came out? So I've become a little bit more um, varied in Hmm. what I do in the classroom in the interest of helping students to learn. Okay. Very, very nice. Um, Any, any favorite teachers that you, that you, uh, that you lean on or that you like to go to? Well, I think that you know, as, I, as I've thought back to my experiences in, um, in school, you know, I think of my, in my high school experience, probably the teacher that had the biggest impact on me was our American history teacher, Mr. Inselman. Inselman. Yeah. Wow. Who, he was a football coach. And of course, uh, all sports, <laughs> all sports coaches teach history. Yeah. It if seems you, it that feels way, that doesn't way. It? Doesn't it? Or, but, or math. That's the other one. Indeed, indeed. So um, what I got from him was an, uh, a contagious interest in the subject matter. Hmm. He loved American history, and he talked about it in ways that you thought, even if I'm not naturally drawn to it, he's making it interesting for me. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated because he's passionate about it. I should, I should listen to this. I should hear him out. And he managed to make people more interested by the way that he taught, even if you weren't naturally inclined towards that. So that's something that stuck with me from that time period. The other, uh, as I I moved on further into college and into seminary and beyond, it became less what I experienced in the classroom and more the relationships that I had with individual teachers or professors Hmm. that began to shape me more. So in college, my Greek professor, who was a believer, but certainly not an evangelical. Okay. Great uh, relationship with him. He did a lot to help me along the way. And um, this is at Ohio University. At Ohio University. Classical Greek. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, he was key, and then in seminary, really the, probably the, the primary guy that I that I think back to is Doug Sweeney. Okay. Church history professor, used to be at um, Trinity. Now he is at Beeson, I think. I think he's the oh, dean he now at Beeson. Beeson. Hmm. But uh, just he took a, a great interest in me, built good relationships with me, and so um, that was key. And then, of course, the whole PhD program is largely built on those relationships. Of sure. Working with your mentor, which mine was Doug Moo. And then, um, but also getting to know other professors in the program there, Greg Beal and others who uh, showed personal interest in me and, and took me aside and developed me in, mm. in how I think and how I teach and that kind of thing. So those were great experiences. But what about you? I mean, how did you kind of make your way into the world of teaching? Yeah, um, I I think I think. Uh, I would say similarly, but earlier, probably probably more high school. Um, I think I was identified by a youth pastor I had, um, pastors I had at my church who 
um, saw some leadership ability as well as the, as well as the high school I went to. They saw some ability mm-hmm. um, to, to teach and, and to lead uh, particularly. So uh, they encouraged that. I, d- I didn't always know what that looked like. I didn't sure. always know that I was doing it right, but I was right. but I was trying my hand, you know. Yeah. Um, and then and then I would say uh, and, and then I would say getting getting to college and kind of taking the first year to figure out <laughs> who I was and and what I'm Very doing common. on this cam on on this campus. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't know anybody coming to Grace, not not a soul. Um, but getting involved in a church and uh, again being reaffirmed uh, mm-hmm. by the pastoral team there and the people there. And encouraged to lead and uh, and to do some to do some teaching and uh, during that time during when I was in college and, and even through seminary getting together with uh, the youth uh, pastor there uh, Tim Clothier if you mm-hmm. remember Tim he's a student sure. here uh, we would get together weekly and talk about different things teaching all these things and, and it led to this time I think what I think it was when I was in seminary where I was teaching once a week, uh, which was a mm-hmm. brand new experience. I'd done yeah. one-offs here and there, but yeah. teaching every week is like a, just like a whole new world. It is, absolutely. Um, and experience some, some real wins there as well, some real failures, and and <laughs> and just getting the opportunity yep. to, to, to try, you know? Uh, yep. uh, you, you know, you, you don't know until you're able to do a little bit. And yeah, um, I, w- I was so grateful for those experiences at uh, at that church. Yeah. What and about any favorite teachers that kind of stood out whether it was in your sort of you know, elementary, junior high, high school experience, whether it's in the church, whether it's in college or seminary, just Yeah, um I would I would say I I always went to small schools. So the personal relationships were always big. So yep. uh, I also had a history teacher, Mr. Oliver, okay. um, who was a huge baseball fan. And because he made such little money at the school we worked at, he also worked at PNC Park in Pittsburgh. <laughs> okay. And so uh, he would he scheduled his day so that he would leave at like fifth or sixth period every day. And he would drive down to the stadium and, and work. Okay. Uh, the, the, you know, he was basically an attendant. Um, nice. And so I would go see him in the stadium when I would go to games. And, okay. But we would spend a ton of time just talking baseball and different things, and that made me more interested in his subject matter and, and uh, those different things. Um, but I've I've always loved uh, studying uh, the Bible, studying um, theology and different things like that. So I always had a good connection with those teachers as well and was always very curious about those things. Mm-hmm. Um, getting into college and into seminary, um, I would say uh, I was always – under, I would say up until one class in college, under the assumption that the teacher is to come in is to teach me. My job is to understand everything he says and then regurgitate right. um, a little bit. Um, I had, uh, uh, oh goodness, I'm blanking on his name, Ed, Ed DeZego, DeZego. Uh, who encouraged us to, no, I want you to write a paper about this and I'm not going to tell you what it is before you write. And so that was a little bit brand new to me. That was my mm-hmm. junior year of college. And uh, that class, as we were working through the book of Galatians, uh, was really formative for me and made me want to go to seminary. And so, uh, you know, one of the one of my favorite teachers in seminary was you, uh, uh, Doc Harmon, and <laughs> just getting me to think about new ways about Scripture and encouraging me to be curious and to think through and to, frankly, try my hand at, at big projects that I don't think mm-hmm. I had any business being a part of <laughs> uh, and trying those things. And then... Um, yeah, I, I would I would say just 
my desire for curiosity drove me to mm-hmm. um, teaching a little bit. And so I uh, got to teach a couple college classes while I was in seminary, uh, some freshman Bible classes. Just not, yep. not full classes, but just dropping in and teaching a class period here and there. Yeah. Um, and, then, uh, and then eventually leading to, to full classes once uh, a few years later. Nice. So let's talk a little bit about, um, and we've maybe hit on this a little bit, but what do we most enjoy about teaching and what do we least enjoy about teaching? Yeah, um, I I really enjoy trying to get my students to be curious about the subject matter that we're dealing with. If it's yeah. a if it's a common freshman Bible class, which I end up teaching a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, trying to flip switches for them and get them thinking about yeah. s- the Bible, Scripture in a new way that they hadn't they haven't thought about it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so have have seen some pretty cool moments in in classes where that happens. Yeah. Uh, so I really, really enjoy that. And I imagine you enjoy the same. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think those kind of aha moments mm-hmm. are uh, so, so rewarding. And, um, you know, if we're, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're trying to help students grow in their understanding, and this is kind of specific to teaching scripture, but there's that. Um, seeing that that spark of interest created as well, right? That um, someone who's like, eh, I don't know, to wow, this is fascinating. I I, I want to I, I want to learn mm-hmm. more. There's so much more there. Um, so that's definitely one of those best parts about about teaching. And if we and if we broaden it out, um, it's the relationship you form with students. Yeah, that. You know, as you as you get to know them in the classroom, and then that extends beyond the classroom. That I I think I've said to numerous people, one of the things that I did not fully anticipate going into being a professor was that my some of my many of my best friends mm-hmm. would be former students. Hmm. Stu- you know, people that I had in the classroom and yeah. had that sort of professor-student relationship and got to know them outside the classroom and built relationship with, w- relationships with them. And now I think about who are my best friends, and most of them are former students. Yeah, And that's a cool feature that I didn't see on the front end of that being true, hmm. but absolutely love that. Yeah. Um, I, I'd also say one of the benefits in uh, – one of, one of the benefits of teaching is it forces you to land somewhere, yeah. you know? Um, you know, I, if I don't have to say something about a topic, mm-hmm. I prefer not to. <laughs> but the minute I have to teach on something, it forces me to, 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 come, down on, to come down somewhere, whether that's on a yeah. passage of Scripture or a cultural topic. You know, I, I have to come down somewhere. Right, um, and so it forces me to think through, and then and then to communicate that that clearly as to why I'm sure. doing it. That, I think that's a huge benefit of teaching. It is, but in addition to that, I would say that uh, part of the joy of teaching is uh, of well is teaching people how to think, mm-hmm. to even how to think through difficult topics or difficult subjects. So, and I know you do this. I'm, that's yeah. not a that's not a that's not a correction or anything. But it's it's the Understanding that teaching, there's a body of knowledge that we need to communicate, and especially mm-hmm. when it comes to scripture, there is this is what's biblical and this is what's not. There's absolutely you know parameters and orthodoxy there to be sure, but there's also the we want to 
help you understand how to think biblically and theologically about something, how to have a framework for approaching things, not just here's content, memorize it, spit it back at us, and then go sure. on. Sure. And, and that happens, I, I think, in all learning, mm-hmm. right? Uh, how to uh, think through something. You don't just communicate your subject matter. You also communicate how to think about your subject matter and how to yes. think broadly about yeah. difficult topics. And, and I would add that one of the, you know, I, you, you hear people say that you don't really know something uh, until you're able to teach it, mm-hmm. right? And so we've all had, you know, areas where we're like, oh, I think I understand that. And then you try to explain it to someone or teach someone, you're like, maybe I don't understand that as well as I thought. And then I would even say the next level beyond teaching then is actually writing. <laughs> because in a sort of oral context where you're teaching, you can kind of explain your way around things and kind of wander to the point where you get somewhere at the end and you're like, oh, okay. But with writing, it's a much more precise kind of yeah. effort to explain to teach where you can't, um, you know, you don't have the other person directly in front of you to be able to pivot quickly and go, oh, I don't mean that. What I mean is this. Like mm-hmm. You have to anticipate those kind of things. You have to be clear. But um, what about areas that you don't enjoy about teaching? Um, grading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amen to that. I, I have a... Uh, I have a friend who um, likes to, who's a professor at another institution who likes to say, I teach for free. They pay me to grade. Yeah. And I would just add to that, they pay me to grade and to attend committee meetings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> depends, depends on the committee. That's true. You know, that's true. if you get on a really good committee, yeah. you know, that's, they, they don't pay for that. No. But so, well, as a sort of, uh, you know, landing spot here, I thought it would be helpful for us to think about, kind of try to crystallize a few things in terms of what is it that makes a good teacher? Like, how do we spot good teachers? How do we work towards becoming better teachers, those of us who have that opportunity? So anything that stands out to you uh, in terms of, as you think about, what are the marks of a good teacher? Yeah, I I always think a good teacher is somebody who's constantly learning, Mm -hmm. right? Good. Um, You know, and, and what I mean by that is they're constantly thinking about their subject matter, constantly reading uh, about their subject matter. Um, I, I don't really subscribe to a teacher who, eh, I don't really enjoy reading or I kind of have everything figured out about this. I yeah. don't really need Red flags, right? Major. Um, so that, and related to that, I think is uh, a general curiosity as yeah. well. Um, you know, curiosity implies more than just learning, but an excitement for it, right? You're, you're, right. There's a discovery element there. Um, and I think that's that's the mark of a good teacher. And then and then I'd also say, do they have uh, interests and curiosities beyond their subject matter? Yeah, you know, you want you want somebody that's um, both uh, interested in the subject matter, but ooh, let me let me read about this other subject and and learn about that. And I, th- I think that's a good indicator. And people like that tend to bring in those things into their subject matter. Yeah. So that they, they start to integrate more. So they're not just, I'm interested in this narrow subject, but it's it becomes a more holistic way of life that, that you help the student think about whatever content you're talking about in relationship to the larger world of knowledge, the larger uh, experiences we have in our culture, those kinds of things. Yeah. How about how about yourself? What do you what do you look for in a good teacher? Well, uh, you, you touched on, on on several of them. I think I think 
that you need to have at some level a love for students. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you just are fascinated with the content but don't really like people, that's going to come across. Yeah. And the kind of teaching you're going to end up doing is going to be very heavy on the knowledge and the content without a sort of directed uh, effort to how do I really connect with this person so that Hmm. I can help them understand whatever the subject matter is. And that it goes beyond that, that you have a love for students that goes beyond just, well, I'm concerned about you making, making sure that you get the content you need and you can, you know, write a good paper, pass the exams and that you're competent in the field. If that's all that, that that's the vibe you give, Students are not going to connect with you. And that's not just true in the sort of academic world. That's true in the church in particular. Oh, where yeah. If, if you're just viewed as this sort of purveyor of content, that that's not going to be uh, really effective teaching. Very few people can get away with that. Right. Yeah. And I, I think a good teacher is able to motivate students. Mm-hmm. That gets to the curiosity piece, but yeah. you need to be able to create an interest in the subject matter, even if there's not a natural one, to say, no, this is worth it. Hang with me here. Like, I know you think this is boring on the surface, but let me show you why this actually matters, why this is really interesting, why this is valuable, why this is important. Even though when I first say this, you're like, why would I care about that? And so sometimes I think this is more even more necessary in some of the lower level, like freshman classes, mm-hmm. where, where I, I refer to it as the dog and pony show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, truthfully, I experienced that with church history. You know, you know, the first, the first 20, 30 minutes of church history is like, okay, here's, here's why you need to care about this. Yeah, you totally. Know? And, and that's, that's going to be true in other contexts in the church or other in, mm-hmm. in the, in the, you know, business world where you have to help people, you have to get people to care about what you're talking about. So you're able to motivate them. Um, and you're also, I think, able to explain. I think this is a, a key mark of, of, of good teaching. The ability to explain difficult or complex issues or ideas in simple ways mm-hmm. that a broad range of people can understand. Yeah, And this is one of the things that we try to hammer away with at our seminary students, right? Mm-hmm. Don't you dare walk into that pulpit or into that Sunday school classroom and just start throwing around $5 theology words that you never explain and just sort of show off your knowledge. Like, ooh, let me talk to you about propitiation. And you start talking about all these like big theological words and people are like, what does that even mean? Why are you or, using that? Or in the Greek, this means. Yeah, or yeah, in that, the Greek, yeah. That, that sort of thing. That the ability to take complex, challenging topics or ideas and breaking them down into understandable um, bits and pieces is, I think, a mark of good teaching. Yeah, absolutely. But there's a lot here. Um, Let me add one other thing. Okay. Um, Mentoring. Mentoring is a big piece, I think. Now, that looks different in different contexts, and we kind of hinted at this in our own personal narratives of, of our journeys, but uh, this is one of the things that I, I really think we strive to do well here at Grace in our in our programs. Yeah, and I think we do. I think we actually do a pretty good job of it. I think um, so too. So uh, every seminary student is connected with a faculty member who is and they're part of their mentoring group. Yep. Uh, and even in our uh, 
five-year MDiv program where students can get both their bachelor's and a master's of divinity in five years, which is an incredibly incredible time and money saver. Compared to a typical seven to eight, yeah. Yeah. Um, we do mentoring throughout all of that as well. Yes. Uh, and even trying to uh, challenge them in thinking in, in areas of ways that aren't normal parts of a uh, of a uh, seminary um, uh, curriculum. Yeah, uh, like faith and work, um, even a, even a little economics um, sure. as a, as it is defined. And uh, so so yeah, we we do that, and uh, it's I think we do the mentoring piece quite well. Yeah, I think that's one of our distinctives here at Grace, and so I think that. Those mentoring relationships, are, I mean, when I think about who my close friends are, the former students who became close friends, all of them came out of the mentor group. <laughs> all of them came out of my mentor group who passed through there, were in there for several years at a time. I think you know, the, those are the guys that um, I, I, I became very good friends with. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, we are in danger of, of yeah, breaking are. records for length of episode here, so we better move on to um, to our athlete for the week. Yeah, number twenty four. Twenty four. So uh, we're baseball heavy, um, but yeah. we have uh, let's let's just tick them off real quick. Yep. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, wore twenty four. Yep. Uh, Willie Mays wore uh, wore twenty four. Mm-hmm. Ricky Henderson. Yeah. Um, who always spoke in a third person. <laughs> uh, Kobe Bryant, who we've already chosen for number eight, but we wanted to mention that he also yeah. wore twenty-four. Yep, correct. Uh, Rick Barry, Golden Golden State Warriors, I believe so, and the Nets, I think at some point. And the but Nets, famous for the uh, underhand free throw. Yeah, the two-hand underhand free throw. I think he was a he had a fairly he was good, old, he's way over ninety percent in terms yeah. of like percentage. And people won't go that way because of pride. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Um, and then, uh, do you want to do our Ohio State? Nod? Yeah. So it's interesting that last week. I think it was last week we had we mentioned Ron Springs was a defensive back, uh, or sorry, a running back in the late seventies. Well, this week number twenty four, his son Sean Springs, who was a terrific uh, defensive back, terrific cornerback in the mid nineties, and went on to have a, a good NFL career. And then a more recent defensive back for Ohio State, Malik Hooker, played safety for Ohio State. And now plays for the Colts. I was about to say he's in the pros. Yeah, and he had he had basically one breakout year where he I think had three or maybe four pick sixes in a season. Wow, which that, that's just crazy numbers. Yeah, so that's Ed Reed like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, so who you want to go with here? For I think we you know I'm willing to defer away from the Ohio State players uh, this week. So. And we've eliminated Kobe because we've already used him. Right. So we're down to Rick and the three baseball players. Yeah. I feel like we should go baseball. Okay. Uh, since we're not getting any baseball this year, we might as well pick one. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, goodness. I like all three of these guys. I never yeah. saw Willie Mays play. Yeah. That's before my time as well. I think we eliminate Willie. Okay. Even though he's historic. Historically great. Yes. Um, I saw Ken Griffey, and who had a great early part of his career, but a rough late part with injuries. Yeah. Um, but is clean. As far as we know. As far as we know, in the steroid era. And he was arguably the smoothest baseball player I've ever seen. Like, he was a great athlete and just fluid. His swing was nice. And, and, and I mean, he was and he was the classic five-tool player. He could literally he could do, do it everything. All. Compared yep. to some of these other players who were more one- or two-dimensional, 
He could run, throw. I mean, he played defense great. He had speed. He hit for power. He hit for average. He was terrific. Yeah, and then Ricky Henderson, uh, (laughs) who talks about himself in the third person all the time, would be on the bases talking about himself in the third person, and would, I think, still— Ricky's going to steal this base. Yeah. Ricky's going to steal second. And that's what he was known for, stealing bases, (laughs) right? Um, So I'm I'm really good with either of them. Uh, I think I maybe lean a little bit Ken Griffey. I do, too. Okay. Let's go with him. Yeah, Ken, Ken Griffey, Griffey Jr. Uh, ended his career with the uh, Cincinnati Reds. Yes, started started with the Mariners. Mariners, yeah, where he played with Alex Rodriguez. Yes. Um, and Alex Cora played second base for that team, who yeah. went on to manage the Red Sox um, and just got fired for cheating. <laughs> One thing we liked. Yeah, um, it was quite the sneeze. <laughs> I don't know if they heard that. I don't know that. if that came through, but that was a remarkable oh sneeze goodness. from one of our coworkers. Um, <laughs> why, don't, why don't you go with one thing you like since uh, okay. since yeah. you, you have it down there? Yeah. I planted a tree this week. Nice. This Saving so, the earth. Arbor Day. Yeah. You know, my, my, my <laughs> philosophy is the world is coming to an end. I'm going to plant a tree. Okay. And so I planted a tree in our backyard. It, it is an autumn blaze mm. maple. So it's a, I, I think it's a blend between like a red maple and a silver maple. It's supposed to eventually grow to a height of about 40 feet and be you know, about 30 to 35 feet wide. Now question, will it produce syrup? Is it one of those trees? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Okay. Because I was about to say, we can tap that thing and, yeah. and get some delicious <laughs> syrup out of it. Yeah. So, you know, your quest to grow grass has, has, has gotten off to a good start. Yeah. And yeah. so I am. My my quest is to get this tree off to a good start. So regular watering and and, and caring for it. So yeah. Anyway, what about you? One thing. Uh, so my one thing is uh, my small group. Uh, the men from my small group got together this weekend uh, and tore down a, a pool. Um, so one of the women in our small group has an above ground pool that was mm-hmm. leaking. She wanted to get rid of it, and so we went to tear that thing down and. We tore that thing down in about 40 minutes, 40, 45 minutes. Yeah, that's impressive. So we were there t- sledgehammers involved? What were the tools of destruction here? You know, we started with sledgehammers and then realized that that wasn't going to go super well. So we just basically unscrewed the whole thing and folded it up. Oh, and it, it, okay. went, it went super quick. Okay. There you go. Yes, you're, you're, you're quite the Renaissance man, John Sloat. You're yeah. growing grass. You're destroying pools. Mm-hmm. Destroying other people's property when they ask yes. me to. Yeah. Yes, there there are seemingly few limits to your talents when it comes to uh, household a, projects. I'm doing a backsplash this weekend. Okay. Yeah, so looking All forward right. to that. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we need to get some pictures up on Facebook of the seedling grass that's coming through the— uh, We can—I uh, I could put that on the Facebook page. Yeah, maybe we can throw a picture of the, of the tree as well. Yeah. So get some uh, get some thoughts on that but we we have um exceeded our typical length and yes. so we appreciate your patience listeners um if you if you've stuck around this long if anybody's listening till still to this point so thank you for your endurance but um we i think are ready to say mission accomplished you good yeah yeah okay i think we're we're marking this as mission accomplished and so until next time the lord bless y'all real good later later